We've read this morning from two portions of Scripture. And the subject matter here follows on very well from what we were dealing with in Revelation chapter 7. The Apostle Paul, under God, is the author of both of these portions. And in both of these portions, he deals with the subject of death and of eternity. There are words here that are guaranteed, if they reach your heart, to comfort you in times of bereavement, when you are dealing with the bereavement that involves believers. Now, there are people who in this world are looking for peace. Uh, Some of those are God's people. Because there are things that have happened in their lives, things that have happened in their experience that have disturbed their peace. And the words of the Lord Jesus Christ in these circumstances sound loud in our ears. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. Those are comforting words. The Lord said in that very same passage in John 14, let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. For those who believe in the Lord Jesus, death brings hope as well as sorrow. And if you look at what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 about the death of a believer, it's calculated to bring comfort to the heart. He said, but I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, and there is a comma in there. People should not imagine that he's referring to a certain group of Christians. I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that ye sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. Now note how he says, I would not have you to be ignorant. He uses that same phrase in the Corinthian epistles. He says, I would not have you ignorant, brethren. The fact of the matter is that oftentimes we are ignorant of certain things, We don't know things that we perhaps should know. And Paul is actually being very gracious here in the way he puts this. Uh, He doesn't use crude language. He's not chiding the people of God. He's being, I think, somewhat diplomatic. He's speaking in a very Christian fashion. Instead of saying, you bunch of ignoramuses, he said, I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren. I don't want you to remain in ignorance on some of these important subjects. There are things upon which we should not be ignorant because the Bible speaks clearly of those things. And one of those things is the destiny of the believer after death. And we ought to think about that because in the midst of life, we're in death. Every day that I live practically, I hear of someone else that I have known personally who has passed away. Now, 
maybe not every day, but it seems like that recently. So many people that I have known, of course I know a lot of people because of uh, our denomination in Northern Ireland especially, and I hear of this one or that one or the other one who has passed away. A lot of times it's someone we've known for many years and they're now elderly and they've gone to be with the Lord. Good friends of ours just lost their mother this weekend. But we also heard about a week before that of a little child that had passed away at only eight months old. Death is no respecter of persons. doesn't matter who you are. You should always be living not in a morbid way, but with the expectation that this could be your last day. And we should always be ready to depart. Remember how Paul talked about that? He said, I have a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. He said, that's what I would like to do. I'd like to go to be with the Lord. Nevertheless, it's more needful for me to abide with you. So I know it's not perhaps going to happen now because the Lord has a work for me to do, but I'm looking forward to going to glory. And basically what he's saying is this, if it should happen now, I'm content with that. I'm good with that. That's how we should live, in readiness for eternity. We're not here to stay, none of us. Someone said there are no U-Haul trailers attached to the hearse. You don't take anything with you into the next life but your soul. Naked came I into the world, Job said, and naked shall I return thither. Eternity beckons. Now we have to live our lives. As long as the Lord has work for us to do, we're going to be here. And we should put our whole effort into serving him. But also with the knowledge, maybe you want to put it to the back of your head, but I would suggest it should be to the front of your mind that this may be my last day. And I must be living in readiness for eternity. I must be living with the expectation of heaven. And therefore, it's a good thing to think about this. Paul wrote to the Colossians, If you then be risen with Christ, or since you're risen with Christ, set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. Be heavenly minded. Don't be like those who say, well, you can be so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good. I do not know anyone like that. I don't. I've never met anyone who was so heavenly minded that they were of no earthly use. I think if you're heavenly minded, you'll be of greater earthly use because you're living with the right perspective and with the right values. So notice here what the Bible says about death in both of these passages. And there are three things really that I want us to consider. First of all, there is the scriptural comparison that is used. We'll go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 for this. Notice how it says, verse 13, But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that ye sorrow not, even as others who have, which have no hope. Concerning them which are 
asleep. Now he's not talking about people who are lying in late in the morning. He's not talking about people lying in their earthly beds. He's referring to the death of the body. And by the way, this expression and this term is never used of the soul or the spirit of man. There are people who believe that nonsense called soul sleep, and it is nonsense. There is no such thing as the sleeping of the soul. The spirit of man doesn't die. In fact, Ecclesiastes tells us that the spirit of man goeth upward. And we'll note this as we move through the scriptural passage in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. But there are several reasons why this comparison is used in the scripture. The death of the body being spoken of as being asleep. First of all, there's a similarity between sleep and death. If you go back to John chapter 11, the story is told there of the death of Lazarus and his subsequent raising rising from the dead. And when the Lord was dealing with those who were there, he said at the beginning of the chapter, or near the beginning of the chapter, in verse 11, these things said he, and after that he saith unto them, Our friend Lazarus sleepeth. Lazarus is asleep. But I go that I may awaken him out of sleep. Then said his disciples, Lord, if he sleep, he shall do well. Well, that's good, Lord, if he is just asleep. Because they knew that he was very sick and probably was liable to die. Lord, if he sleep, he shall do well. That'd be good if he is just asleep. How be it, verse 13, Jesus spake of his death, but they thought that he had spoken of taking of rest in sleep. Then said Jesus unto them plainly, Lazarus is dead. So take these two things together. Verse 11 and verse 14, our friend Lazarus sleepeth. Lazarus is dead. Sleep and death are equivalent in the words of Christ. And a dead body and a sleeping body are actually very similar. I don't know if you've ever been to a funeral where someone has made the remark concerning the deceased, he or she looks as if they're just asleep. I remember going to a funeral of a godly elder from my home church. I have never hardly seen someone in their casket so lifelike. It was, it was unbelievable. You would, you would think in looking at him at any moment, he would just sit up and start talking to you. Didn't have that appearance that many have that looks really false, almost like a plastic doll or something like that. He looked so lifelike. And you could have easily said concerning that godly man, he looks like he's just asleep, because he did. Well, you know, in a way, it's true. The body of a believer, even in the casket, is asleep. A sleeper doesn't cease to exist. And the inference here is that the dead don't cease to exist just because the body is asleep. 
We know that sleep is temporary. For some of us, it's too short. It's temporary. Death has its resurrection. And it's not that life is existence and death is non-existence. That is not the case. That's what many ungodly people believe. When you're living your life, you're existing, and when you die, you cease to exist. That is not the teaching of Scripture. You go on living. But not only is there a similarity between sleep and death, the word that's translated here in 1 Thessalonians 4 as asleep has its root in a Greek word, kimai, which means to lie down. And that's a very interesting thing. Because the word for resurrection is a word that refers only to the body. It doesn't refer to the soul, it refers to the body. It is anastasis. And it comes from two Greek words, histemai, which means to stand, and ana, the preposition up, to stand up. And it's only the body that can stand up in resurrection. Many of God's people during their last moments on the earth show by the expression on their countenances and sometimes the words that come out of their mouths that they see heaven off in the distance. Sometimes they've even spoken of seeing the Lord in his glory. Some of them even seem to have seen loved ones in Christ who have gone before waiting to welcome them. And they've heard the music of heaven. Now you can believe that or not believe it. And some people will mark that down as hallucinations or the effects of medication or whatever they want to say to, to sort of explain it away. But it is a fact that many people seem to be granted a similar experience to Stephen. You read about Stephen, don't you, in Acts chapter 7, about his death. And it's very interesting, you know, to read carefully what happened there. Acts chapter 7, from verse 55. But he, being full of the Holy Ghost, looked up steadfastly into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing on the right hand of God. He was granted in his dying moments that vision of the Lord in glory. Some have remarked that Jesus was standing on the right hand of God, whereas he usually is sitting on the right hand of God. It's as if the Lord stood in honor of his servant, who was suffering a death of martyrdom, And notice what he said, verse 56. Behold, I see the heaven opened and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. And he prayed in verse 59, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he prayed then the next verse, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. See that? He fell asleep. Doesn't mean that he went for a little nap. It means he died, because right away after that, it says in the next verse, and Saul was consenting unto his death. 
So in case you're in any doubt, Stephen wasn't just asleep, he was dead. But the word that's used there is that he was, he was asleep. The Apostle Paul had an experience once that he talked about in 2 Corinthians 12. And he admitted himself, he said, whether it was in the body or whether out of the body, I cannot tell, God knoweth. I was caught up into the third heaven. And he said he saw things that it was not lawful for him to utter. And the Lord gave him, allowed him to get a thorn in the flesh to keep him humble so that he wouldn't be puffed up by that experience. But it was an experience that he had of being able to look at things in heaven. This was not the wild imagination of someone dying, but a sober fact. Among the things that the Bible says about the death of a believer and the life that follows in glory is that death is a laying to sleep by Jesus. Now I want to just dwell on this for a moment. The death of a Christian, despite all appearance to the contrary, does not come about by happenstance or by accident. It's not the consequence of a mistake made either by doctors or by the patient himself or herself. It proceeds in its ultimate cause from the Lord Jesus himself, either promoting or permitting certain things to terminate the life of a disciple. And I can tell you this morning that some vehicle will be used by God to transport you from this life to the next. It may be a terminal illness, as my late wife suffered. It could be a car crash. It could be a plane crash. It could be a drowning at sea. It could be a heart attack. It could be some other malady that you get. You could be murdered. God forbid. But there's all manner of ways in which people leave this life and go to the next. But in any case, it's going to be God's chosen vehicle for you to transport you to glory. My late mother once said to me in her dying moments, something will take us from this earth. And God is in charge of that. The Lord is in control of that. It's in his hands. And so the death of a Christian is not an accident. It's not because of some mistake. Some people are full of what-ifs when their loved one dies because of something that happened at a hospital or didn't happen at the hospital. Listen, at the end of the day, it's the purpose of God. At the end of the day, we have to say, as Job did, the number of his months is with thee. Thou hast appointed his bounds that he cannot pass. So there's a day written down from eternity. It's got your name on it. And that date is when you'll leave this earth and go to heaven if you're saved. And you'll not go to heaven if you're not saved. But there's a day coming when you'll leave this earth. But this death proceeds in its ultimate cause from the Lord Jesus himself. Now let me just show you this. The literal translation of 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 14 could be them which sleep in Jesus or them which are laid to sleep by Jesus. I checked this in the Greek. It bears this translation. 
some will say laid to sleep by Jesus in, in the sense that it's beside him. But I prefer, as some commentators will say, to believe that it means they're laid to sleep by the hand of Jesus. What a beautiful illustration and what a consoling fact that is. Death is likened to sleep, but death to the believer is the Lord Jesus laying the body of the believer to rest from its activities and burdens and trials and weariness and sufferings. He does that with all the gentleness and the care and the love and the tenderness of a devoted mother when she puts her little one to bed at night and lays him down to rest. That's the thought here. And you'll excuse the personal reference again. I was there when the Lord did that for my dear departed wife. I like to think of that. She didn't just go to be with the Lord. He came for her. When her mother passed away, we had a phone call from Dr. Alan Cairns commiserating with us and prayed with us. And I well remember him saying this. He said, you know, people talk about your loved one going to be with the Lord. He said, that's partially true. Well, it's actually true. They do go to be with the Lord. But he says, actually what happens is the Lord comes for them. The Lord comes at that moment for them. And that corresponds with what happened to Lazarus. Remember there what it says in Luke chapter 16? That the angels, the angels bore him into Abraham's bosom. Which is just another way of speaking about heaven or paradise. It's a wonderful thought, you know. That the Lord actually lays you down to sleep when he's ready to take you to heaven. It's an amazing thought. So it's always wise and it's certainly a great comfort to us to regard the passing of loved ones in Christ. To think of them as being laid to sleep. Being laid down to sleep by the Lord. And to stop thinking about the secondary causes. And this has helped me greatly. Those trying circumstances and the painful events and the experiences associated with the failing health that result, resulted in death. Sometimes we torment ourselves with these extraneous things. There's a lot of mystery involved with that. Why? Why it should be. But here's a great comfort to our hearts. The simple truth that the loved one who has now gone was laid to sleep by Jesus. His time and in his way he took them to be with himself. That's a precious thing to know that at death the spirit of the believer passes from the body guarded and carried by the angels through the air. Luke 16, 22 and in a flash if you like or to use a biblical expression in a moment in the twinkling of an eye they're in glory. Amazing to think. That's all invisible to us. 
We can look up all we like at the sky and we can't see any of it. It's all veiled from our sight, but it's just real as if we could see it. It's real. The Bible speaks of heaven. When my wife was in the hospice, I think I told you I had some encounters with so-called Jehovah's Witnesses. I don't like calling them Jehovah's Witnesses because they're not. They're not witnesses to Jehovah. They're false witnesses. They're Russellites, actually, is what they are. They're followers of a man called Charles Taze Russell, who was a total heretic and a liar, pretended to know Greek, didn't know any Greek. Judge Rutherford, another who followed in his train, exactly the same, a liar and a deceiver, all of which I said to those Jehovah's Witnesses, so-called. But I said to them one day going in to visit my dear wife, I'm going into that hospice. You've got no message for anybody in there who's just short time away from their death. You don't have any message for them. But my wife's saved and she's ready for heaven. And they say, oh, there is no heaven. No, no heaven? You haven't read your Bible. Well, maybe you've read yours, but you haven't read the true Bible. Because the real Bible is full of references to heaven. Full of it. And what a blessed word that is. Heaven. What is heaven? It's the center of the divine government. It's the throne of God. And it's the place where the Savior, in all of his grace and glory, without a veil is seen. It's the dwelling place of the elect angels and of the spirits of just men made perfect. Hebrews chapter 12 teaches us that. Now when we look at the scripture, not only do we see that there's a similarity between sleep and death, and that the word which is translated as sleep has its root in the Greek, which means to lie down or to be laid down in death or laid down in sleep by Jesus. But it's interesting that that same Greek word that's used for sleep in 1 Thessalonians 4 is used elsewhere in the Bible when referring to a natural sleep, when the body lies down in bed. And I'll just mention two references here. Luke chapter 22, verse 45. And when the Lord rose up from prayer and was come to his disciples, he found them sleeping for sorrow. It's the same word. Now there it's not their death. They were actually asleep. They were snoozing. But that's the same word used in 1 Thessalonians 4. And the word is used as well in Acts chapter 12 and verse 6. And when Herod would have brought him forth, that's Peter, the same night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains. Peter was asleep. He was naturally asleep. But that's the word that's used in 1 Thessalonians 4. It's just like natural sleep when you go to be with the Lord, when you die, when your body dies as a Christian, it's like you're falling asleep. But there's a third thing here. The Bible teaches that the body returns to the dust of the earth, but that the spirit returns to the presence of God. Even in the Old Testament, we're taught this. For instance, Ecclesiastes 12, verse 7, Then shall the dust return to the earth as it was, and the spirit shall return unto God who gave it. Notice that. 
the body and the spirit. The dust, that's our body. That's how Adam was created. The Lord took the the dust of the ground and he made a man. And he told him that. He said to Adam, dust thou art and unto dust shalt thou return. And many a funeral service I have taken and have used those words. Ashes to ashes, dust to dust. It was the body that was taken from the dust and then God breathed into man the breath of life or the spirit. And that's why, I'm sorry to disappoint you, animals don't go to heaven. The creator creator made man in his own image. Never says that about the animals. God never made the animals in his own image. It says that God breathed into Adam the breath of life. It doesn't say that about the animals. And a very important verse in this connection is Ecclesiastes 3 verse 21, where it says, The spirit of man goeth upward to God, and the spirit of the beast downward to the earth. So let's keep it in perspective. Don't imagine that the death of an animal is equivalent to a person. It's not. It's not even close to, the, to being equivalent to the death of a person. There's so much idolatry in the world today where animals are exalted to position higher than people in many cases. There are folks who regard their dogs and their cats and whatever other domestic animals they have with more affection than people. It is the body of the believer that will go to sleep until the resurrection, but only the body. But the spirit of a believer will return to God. That's what Ecclesiastes 3 verse 21 says. Jesus said, are you not ye much better than a sheep? Man is a higher creation than the animals. That's why God gave him dominion over the animals. So by all means, look after your animals. The book of Proverbs says, the righteous man regardeth the life of his beast. You should look after your animals, but keep them in their proper perspective. They're dumb animals. We need to be concerned about the souls of men and women. Now, what is death? Death is a separation. It's not the ending of the spirit or the personality. These do not die. The real you, if you like, that lives and inhabits that body goes on to be with the Lord if you're a child of God. It's the body that disintegrates. It's the body that goes to dust again. But death is a separation of the body from the individual, from the person. The body decays, the body decomposes, the body disintegrates, dust to dust, ashes to ashes, but that applies only to the body, not to the soul, not to the spirit. The spirit or the soul does not die, and therefore the spirit or the soul is not raised. Only the body can lie down in death, and only the body can stand up in resurrection. That educated fool The evolutionist who's always castigating Christianity and speaking against Christianity, Robert Dawkins, did an interview recently with Piers Morgan in which Morgan asked him, what do you think happens when you die? He said, you cease to exist. 
Of course, he would know. He ceased to exist. And Morgan put it to him. He said, but there are people who have testified in their dying moments to seeing things beyond the grave, to a future life of some kind. And he just poo-pooed that, made it out as if that was of no consequence. Poor man, poor fool. He'll find out one day if he doesn't repent of his sins. Now, it's obvious that only the body can lie down in death and only the body can stand up in resurrection. And that is obvious from what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And I want us to go there. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, it's obvious that Paul is talking about the death of the body in those opening verses. He says, for we know, here's something that we know. That if our earthly house of this tabernacle or tent, that's the word, were dissolved, he's talking about the human body, we have a building of God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this, that is in this tabernacle, in this tent, in this body, we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed upon with our house which is from heaven. The body is... A frail tent that's laid aside temporarily in death. The Greek word for tabernacle here is skinos, which means literally a tent. The bodies we live in are tents. You can live in a house that costs three or four hundred thousand bucks, but the place where you really live is just a little tent, your body. And you could reduce the body to its component chemicals, And someone said the whole amount might sell for about $5. Every one of us lives in a tent that's worth about five bucks. Really. It can be blown down at any moment, just like a tent. And if you don't believe that, be foolish enough to walk out in front of the traffic out here when you leave church. You'll know that that tent will fold up and it'll slip away very quickly. Our bodies are actually very frail. We groan within our tents. That's what Paul says here in verses 2 and 4. We groan within our tents. We get older. Gray starts coming into our hair if we have any left. Remember a fella said, you know, when you get those little gray bits at the side of your temples there, it makes you look distinguished. I said, yeah, it distinguishes me from young people. That's what it does. You start to realize you're getting older. Start losing your teeth. You start feeling not so good when you have done some physical exercise. And when it used to take you half a day to get over it, now it takes you a week. That's getting older. That's groaning within this tent. We're not going to be here much longer. We're just living in a little tent down here. And we're soon going to be slipping away. That tent will be blown away. When President Adams was an old man, a friend asked him about his health. And Adams answered that he was fine, but the house that he lived in was getting rickety and was not in good repair. Well, that's true of our bodies. That's something that we learn each and every day. These old bodies are going to be put into the grave and there they're going to sleep. This is the scriptural comparison. 
But we move quickly to the settled confidence. And here we're in 2 Corinthians 5, verses 6 and 7. Notice this confidence that Paul has. He says, Therefore we are always confident, knowing, there it is again, we know, that whilst we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. We walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Now, you should look at these two words together. In verse 6, at home, and in verse 8, present. They both mean the same thing. We are at home in this body because this is where we live in this life. We're at home and we're absent from the Lord in that literal sense. But people don't really get to see us, you know. We're we're hidden inside our bodies. You see me, you think, but all you see is this tent that I live in, this body that looks a certain way, but the real me, you don't see. I live in this body. There's a soul. There's a real me. And Paul says we're confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. As I say, you bring these two together, verse 6, where it says at home in the body, and verse 8, present with the Lord. It means at home with the Lord. What a great thought that is. There's nothing lovelier than that. If I die before any of you and you come to my funeral, I don't want you to come by and say, he looks so natural. Because I won't even be there. You'll be looking at my tent that I've left behind, the old house that has been put to sleep. Because I will have gone to be with the Lord And then at the resurrection, our bodies will be raised up and reunited with our souls. You know, I don't think I told you this. I was the first one, as is the natural way, to go and see my wife's remains uh, after the undertaker had done his good work. And he left me alone there in the funeral home with her. He said, you can go in there, take as much time as you like. You know how long I needed about a minute about a minute maybe that you know why? because when I looked at her remains the thought that immediately came to me was you're not there this is the tent that you lived in you don't even look like yourself sorry you're with the Lord when a woman gets that lovely little velvet blue or maroon box from her beloved And she opens it. The box gets set to the side and she's interested in that jewel. She doesn't leave the jewel to the side and walk about with this little box and look at, oh, what a beautiful box that is. Look at the velvet and the lovely soft material inside. No, no, that's that's just the little receptacle in which the real jewel is. That's the soul in the body. That's how I thought of it in relation to to June. What I'm looking at there, that's the little velvet box that she lived in. The real person is with the Lord, enjoying the presence of Christ. What a joy that is. Many years ago in the city of New York, 
They had an argument about whether the resurrection was literal or spiritual. Liberals even today claim that it's spiritual, the resurrection. Don't believe in a bodily resurrection at all. But a famous Greek scholar from the University of Chicago read a paper on that passage from 1 Corinthians 15 about the body. It is sown a natural body, it's raised a spiritual body, there is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. And his paper put all the emphasis on the word spiritual. And then he concluded, now brethren, you can see that resurrection is spiritual because it says it's spiritual. All the liberals applauded. Somebody made a motion that they print the manuscript of that and circulate it. Well, there was a man there, a very fine conservative Greek scholar, and he stood up. And when he stood up, all the liberals got very uneasy because this man could ask some embarrassing questions. The man said, I'd like to ask the author of the paper a question. Reluctantly, the good doctor stood up. Now, doctor, which is stronger, a noun or an adjective? Very simple question, but I'd like for you to answer it. The professor was smart. He could see the direction that this man was going, and he didn't want to answer it because he had to say that a noun is stronger, of course. Now, doctor, I'm amazed that you presented the paper that you did today because you put the emphasis upon an adjective, and the strong word is the noun. Now, let's look at it again. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. He said, the only thing that's carried over in resurrection is the body. It's one kind of body when it dies. It's a natural body, but it's raised a body, but a spiritual body. Dominated now by the Spirit, but it's still a body. And they never did publish that manuscript. They decided it would be better not to publish it. It's just a simple exercise in grammar would have answered this great so-called professor's whole manuscript and his entire argument. You know what Daniel said? Daniel 12 verse 2. Many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. Notice that. Them that sleep in the dust of the earth. They'll awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. You see, not everybody is saved. And at the resurrection, some will be raised to everlasting life and some will be raised to shame and everlasting contempt. And Jesus said the same thing in John chapter 5. The hour is coming in the which all that are in the grave shall hear his voice and shall come forth. They that have done good unto the resurrection of life, them that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. How many ministers do you hear quoting that at a funeral? Very few, I would suggest. Dust is going to go back to dust. Many that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. That's the body, but the spirit goes to God who sent it. You know that there's another thing here about this sleep with which death is described. The early Christians adopted a very wonderful word for the burying places of their loved ones. There's a Greek word, I'm probably not pronouncing it right, koimaterion. And that Greek word means a rest house for strangers or a sleeping place. It's the same word, incidentally, from which we get our English word cemetery. The same word was used in that day for an inn, or what we would call a hotel or a motel. 
like the equivalent of a Hilton or Ramada or Holiday Inn, whatever. Places where you spend the night to sleep, you see. Places where you're expecting it up the next morning and continue your journey. That's the picture of the place where you bury your believing loved ones. It's as if they're spending a night in a motel. Now you and I don't cry, do we, when we have someone near to us who goes and spends a weekend in a motel? No, we usually rejoice with them. That's, that's a lovely thing for you to be able to do. Especially if it's in some nice resort. You don't cry about that. You rejoice with them. As one said, the body of the believer has been just put into a motel until the resurrection. One day the Lord's coming and that body's going to be raised up. Now look at 1 Thessalonians 4.13 again. That ye sorrow not, and it doesn't have a period in there. There's no full stop, as we say in the UK. It doesn't say ye sorrow not, don't sorrow. No. There's, the Bible's full of people who sorrowed over the death of loved ones. And there were believers. Abraham came up to mourn and to weep for Sarah, his wife who had died. The disciples came up and made great lamentation over Stephen. Those that were at Lazarus' grave were there mourning and weeping. It doesn't say you sorrow not. It says you sorrow not even as others. That's the rest. Which have no hope. Isn't it a terrible thing to have no hope? The pagan world had no hope. Because to them, death was a frightful thing. You know, in the city of Thessalonica, where Paul preached, they found an inscription that simply says, after death, no reviving, after the grave, no meeting again. After death, no reviving, after the grave, no meeting again. That's paganism. That's Robert Dawkins' theology. But the Greek poet Theocritus wrote, quote, hopes are among the living, the dead are without hope. That's paganism. That's the belief of the ancient world, pessimistic, doleful. And I tell you, there's a lot of that around today. Many people that you talk to, that's what they think. When you die, you're like a dog. That's the end. Well, we're not to sorrow like the pagan world. And you can usually tell at a funeral, by the way people are crying, whether they have hope or not. Christians do weep. There's nothing wrong with that. The Bible never says, Paul never said, believers are not to weep. What he does say is that we're not to sorrow as others which have no hope. See, there's, the righteous hath hope in his death. That's what the Bible says. We see the Lord Jesus weeping at the death of a friend. John chapter 11. Shortest verse in the Bible. I said it last week. Jesus wept. And if you want to know how Christ feels about the death of your loved ones, look at that. Jesus wept. The Lord, when he saw the sister of Lazarus weeping and the Jews weeping that came with her, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. Jesus wept. The Lord weeps with us. The Lord is, I could put it this way, sad with us. He enters into great sympathy with us. Jesus wept. The Lord mingles his tears with ours. He groans within himself. 
A Christian has sorrow at the death of a loved one, but he also has hope. And that brings me to my third point here. We're speaking about death as sleep. And there's the special comfort connected with that. Look at verse 14 of 1 Thessalonians 4. For if we believe, and that's a big if there, isn't it? If we believe. It's always if we believe. If you don't believe, there's no hope. But if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and we do believe that, even so, them also which sleep, there it is again, in Jesus will God bring with him. Jesus died and rose again. Isn't it interesting that he doesn't say that Jesus slept? doesn't say that. It says he died. He died to pay the penalty for our sins. We know there's three types of death in the Bible. Physical death, separation of the spirit from the body. There's spiritual death. We're separated from God. We're dead in trespasses and sins. And then there is eternal death. And that's eternal separation from God. That's hell. That's what Revelation 20:14 calls the second death. But Christ has conquered death, all death, physical death, spiritual death, eternal death. Those that are saved, they may die physically, but as it says there in John chapter 11, Whoso liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Because there's resurrection. There's the hope of life eternal. Spiritual death is dealt with. You hath he quickened, made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins. That's what happens when you become a Christian. Regeneration. You're brought from death unto life. And then there's eternal death. Hell. You'll never be in hell because Jesus suffered eternal hell for us. He's conquered death. And that is why 1 Corinthians 15 can say, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin. The strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. One Bible teacher said that since God has taken the sting out of death, it's a bit like a bee that has his stinger removed. Well, really hard to tell when a bee's stinger has been removed. That's why I don't go near bees if I can. Beekeepers are different, but not me. I'm not a beekeeper. I don't want to be stung. But death has lost its sting. Because we're to look out beyond death. Because death is just a doorway that opens up the vast regions of eternity. O grave, where is thy victory? Thanks be to God which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. There's great comfort in the fact that Christ has conquered death. Back to 1 Thessalonians 4.15. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent, and it means precede or go before them which are asleep. We which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent, will not precede those which are asleep. Those that are in the graves, they will rise first. If we happen to be alive when Jesus comes, the dead in Christ will rise first. 
They have the priority. They'll be going first. And then we which are alive and remain caught up together with them to be with the Lord. What a day that will be. When he descends from heaven with a shout. And that shout is a voice of command. It's the same voice that said to Lazarus, come forth. He'll say to every believer in every grave, come forth. And the voice of the archangel and the trump of God. Some people think that that's spiritual and it's talking about the Lord's voice being like a trumpet. I prefer to believe that it's an actual trumpet. But whatever the case, the trumpet is the loudest instrument in the orchestra. Anybody who can see a secret rapture in that passage, I don't know how they get it. Because it's the loudest chapter in the Bible. The shout, the voice of the archangel, the trumpet, all sounding. And whenever the Lord comes, it's going to be a very orderly procedure. The dead in Christ first. Here comes the martyrs. Here comes Stephen. Here comes James, the brother of John. Here comes all the other saints of God through the ages, the martyr role. They're all in procession being led by the Lord up into glory. And those that are alive at the time are going to bring up the rear of the parade, so to speak. They'll they'll be at the tail end of it. But notice how it finishes here. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. You know, it's comforting to think, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, that we're going to be absent from the body and present with the Lord or at home with the Lord. At home. I love that. At home. There's nothing like being at home. Home is where the heart is, they say. Home is where you're comfortable. Home is where you're familiar with the surroundings. You're not going to go to heaven and wonder who's that and who's this and who's the other person. We will know one another in heaven. Peter and James and John didn't have to ask Jesus, who are these two characters on the mountain with us? Moses and Elijah. They knew who they were. And Moses died and was buried. And here he is in his glorified state, appearing to those disciples. They knew him. Will we know one another in heaven? You're right, we will. Those that come from the east and the west are going to sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. There wouldn't be much point in sitting down with them if they didn't know who they were. You'll know me in heaven and I'll know you. And most of all, and most precious of all, we'll know the Lord. We'll see him as he is. Is there not comfort in that? Sometimes I like to play hymns at home these days from a certain church and it's not your CCM garbage it's traditional good biblically based hymns and I love it and I was listening to one earlier they were singing what a day that will be when my Jesus I shall see when I look upon his face the one who saved me by his grace when he takes me by the hand and leads me through the promised land. What a day, glorious day that will be. Are you looking forward to that day? 
You've seen the Lord thus far only by faith. You don't know what he looks like, but you know him. He walks with you and he talks with you and you you hear his voice and his word. And he answers your prayers and he draws alongside whenever you're in times of trial and grief. But you've never seen him as he is, but that's going to change. Because as soon as you leave this earth and you set foot in glory, you'll see him as he is. What an amazing thing that will be. What a comfort there is in that. Isaac Watts wrote, Now he's drawing closer, and the voice of my beloved sounds. Over the rocks and rising grounds, o'er hills of guilt and seas of grief, he leaps and he flies to my relief. Comfort one another with these words. May the Lord help us to be able to extract the blessing from his word that he has for us in the thought that death is only sleep. And one day we shall awake in his likeness, for we shall see him as he is.